Hi, I'm Kyle Carlson, and you're listening to one of my messages from Imprint Community Church in Northeast Baltimore. I pray that this message will encourage you in your walk with Jesus Christ. Visit us online at imprintcommunity.org and worship with us in person on Sundays at 10 a.m. at Seven Oaks Elementary School. Enjoy the message. The rest of you, if you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn to the Gospel of John. fourth book in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and we continue in our journey through this gospel, through the life and ministry of Jesus. We come to this second half, kind of the concluding section of John's gospel. We'll find ourselves today at the end of chapter 13 and the beginning of chapter 14 of John's gospel. You know, in our culture uh, and, and in our society, you've probably heard through the years various ideas about the so-called afterlife. Whatever happens after we die, what kind of existence there may be on the other side of the grave. Uh, and in fact, virtually every system of belief throughout history has some version of a life after death, which I think indicates that there's a deep longing. There's kind of an ingrained instinct in people to want to live continually, right? To want to go on and on and on. So in the book of Ecclesiastes, it says that God has set eternity in the hearts of men. And so it does seem that even those who don't uh, profess faith in Jesus at all, have some notion of there being a life after death. And of course, if there's a good place and a bad place, everybody wants to be in the good place, right? And everybody probably envisions themselves being there. I've had enough conversations with people along these lines. Do you believe you're a good person? Almost everybody says, well, I know I'm not perfect. I know I'm not as good as I could be, but yeah, I'm a pretty good person. So then you ask, okay, so if there is an after life, there's a good place and a bad place, where do you think you would go? And most people would say, well, you know, I think I'll be in the good place because I've lived a decent life and things like that. We'll get to some of those notions a little bit later in our time. But the point is that everybody, culturally, not every single individual, but throughout human history, the afterlife, a life after death, has been an integral part of how people view the world and view reality and view themselves. C.S. Lewis famously said in his book, Mere Christianity, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. And so the notion of a a future and eternal existence is a universal desire and belief at some level. The truth is human beings are terrified of dying. Partly because it's unknown to us, as in unexperienced. We don't know firsthand what happens after we die because we haven't died yet. So we have beliefs and ideas and people form philosophies about what happens. But none of us have died, and so we don't know by experience what happens after we die. So 
there's this great fear of death and billions of dollars cast into trying to prolong our lives as long as possible lest we arrive too soon and experience that great unknown. But I also think that our fear of death is partly because we can envision and have probably heard some pretty terrible things about a possible afterlife. So if there's a good place and a bad place, we can imagine what the bad place might be like. And there's probably some collective awareness in our culture of some notions of hell as a place of torment and fire and those kinds of things. And so we tend to categorize our afterlife options based on the quality of our lives, right? How well have we lived? If you ask someone on the street, will Adolf Hitler be in heaven? He'll almost certainly say, no way. On what basis? Well, he was terrible. He was evil. He killed a lot of people, right? Yet if you ask if, say, a Mahatma Gandhi would be in heaven, most people would say, well, yeah, right? Because Gandhi was a better person than Hitler, right? He lived a more virtuous life. He wasn't guilty of such atrocious evil as Hitler. And so on that basis, he is likely to be in heaven while Hitler is not. That's the way that we tend to think about life after death and where we'll end up. Well, in the passage that we come to today, Jesus will provide some much-needed clarity for us on life after death. He's going to clarify two things. First of all, what life after death is like, not in great detail, not in every question. He doesn't answer every question that we have, but he provides some important realities about what life after death will be like. And he's going to provide some important clarity regarding how we get there. What life after death is like and how to get there. All right? So the setting of this teaching of our Lord is, as you'll remember, the anxiety and despair of the disciples. So in John chapter 13, we see Jesus and his disciples gathered together on the night before his crucifixion. So they're in a room together sharing dinner. Jesus has washed their feet, not just as an act of humility, but as a picture of and foreshadowing of the cleansing that Jesus would provide through his death on the cross. And then he's given them some pretty bad news, right? He's told them that one of them would betray him. And he's told them that he's about to leave. So the disciples are feeling unsure, to say the least. Let's read together verses 36 through 38 of John 13. Jesus has just told them uh, that he was going to leave and that, that one of them would be betraying him. And then he gave them this command to love one another as I have loved you. And then he says, uh, and then we have these words in chapter 13, verse 36. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. 
times. So the bad news continues. They learn that Jesus is leaving. They've learned that one of them is going to betray him. And now they learn that Peter, their leader, their champion, himself is going to fail spectacularly in the coming hours. He's going to deny Jesus three times. And we see Peter's confidence here, which is so characteristic of Peter, right? I'm going to die for you, right? I'm going all the way. He just said a few verses earlier when Jesus was washing their feet. He said, you can't wash my feet, right? You, rabbi, master, teacher, can't wash my feet, the servant, the disciple. And Jesus said, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part in me. And he said, okay, then all of me, right? So Peter has this, has this big, brash sort of confidence. And Jesus kind of points out the reality that his self-assurance is woefully misplaced. He doesn't know himself as well as he thinks he does. The Lord has to remind him of his weakness. Will you die for me? Actually, there's some irony there, I think, intended in that phrasing. So Peter says, I will lay my life down on behalf of you. And Jesus repeats that word for word, but puts a question mark on it. Will you lay down your life for me? Of course, if you remember what's coming... Jesus is going to be the one laying down his life for Peter and for all. So, really? Are you going to lay down your life for me? In fact, actually, when the pressure is on, you're going to buckle. That's what's going to happen here. You're not going to lay down your life. You're actually going to run, hiding and denying that you even know me. When I was uh, in in my high school band days. I was a trumpet player in high school, but I fancied myself a pretty good, you know, kind of jack-of-all-trades kind of a musician, and so at times I would sort of, say if there were like some extra time at the end of the band practice, I would kind of goof around on other instruments, see if I could kind of figure things out. Well, the drum line, this is during like marching season, so everybody has the drums that like hook on. Uh, one of the instruments in the drum line was this, these four toms, what they called quads, because there were four of them, and I just thought they were super cool. And so I would go back and like kind of try to play around on them and see if I could kind of mimic some of the drum cadences that the drum line would perform. And at some point, the, some of the drummers heard me doing that and they thought, wow, you're pretty good at that. And so like we would actually, at the end of band practice, they would do this particular cadence. I, can't, I wish I could remember the name of it. I can't remember what it was called. But they would do this particular cadence. I could hear it in my head. Um, and I would play the quad part. And they were all pretty impressed. Like, wow, you, you're good. Like, you can do the quads. And so we kind of created this little uh, scheme at an upcoming football game on a Friday night uh, when it, the band director called that particular cadence that I would sneak into the drum section and the quad player would hand me his drums. And I would play the quad part on that particular cadence and just see if, if he noticed or whatever, right? And so I thought it was pretty hot stuff. Like, I'm in the drum line now. This is cool, right? That's the band geek level of cool is drum line, just so you know. All right. So I'm like, all right, here we go. So he calls the cadence. The moment of truth comes. I am ready to go. I put on the quads. I got my sticks ready to go. They start the cadence. Everything's going fine until there's this section toward the end of it where there's these kind of like triplets. And when we get to the triplet part, I don't know if it's nerves or what, you know how you kind of speed up when you get nervous? 
I just totally went crazy with the tempo on this piece. So instead of being like in lockstep, now I'm like rushing ahead and the whole thing falls apart. Like the cadence collapses because I just utterly ruined it. And I will never forget the look on my band director's face when he figured, because he, he doesn't even pay attention. He's watching the game. We're playing behind him. And when the drums start falling apart, he turns around and he sees me holding the quads and totally messing up the song. He was so furious with me. Um, I got a few choice words from him afterward. Uh, and I never attempted again to play quads with the drum line. I thought, oh, just stay in the trumpet section where I belong and maybe I'm a little bit better equipped. Um, I felt a little bit at that moment like Peter might have right here. Like, Psh, come on, I'm going to die for you, Lord. And Jesus was like, actually, you're going to deny me. You're not even going to last the night. Before the rooster crows, you're going to deny that you even know me. You may have heard Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Sober self-examination is a good spiritual discipline for us. We don't like it. We don't like to come in close contact with our weakness, with our limitations. But it's good for us to be reminded that we don't have everything that it takes to endure whatever pressures we may have. Don't assume that you have the strength or the gifts to hold up under the pressures of life and faith without help from the Holy Spirit and the people of God. In fact, I would say that giving your brothers and sisters in the Lord a doorway into your life, making yourself vulnerable enough to admit weakness and struggle is one key step on the pathway toward maturity in Christ. Peter had to learn this lesson the hard way by pronouncing his strength and finding not only the Lord say to him, that's actually not how this is going to play out, but then as we, we know how this unfolds, he will in fact fail and deny Jesus. That comes later in John's gospel. So during the dinner, uh, the disciples have learned Jesus is going to leave them and that in his absence, one of them is about to betray Jesus and that Peter, their leader is going to deny Jesus three times that very night. So you can imagine they would be distressed by these pronouncements. They would be worried about what's about to happen. And indeed, their shell shock is implied by the very next words from the mouth of the Lord that open chapter 14. Read with me verses 1 through 3 of John 14. Jesus speaks. <clears throat> Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Follower of Jesus, your true home is in heaven. Your true home is with the Lord in his eternal kingdom. Jesus recognizes their despair, right? He sees that they're troubled, and so he offers some comfort to them, right? 
Let not your hearts be troubled. And his comfort comes in two forms. First, an exhortation, and then a vision of a hopeful future. An exhortation and a vision of a hopeful future. The exhortation is simply this. Trust me. Right? Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust me. It says, believe in God. Believe also in me. As he has said throughout this gospel, and as he will continue in the verses that come right after this, um, he has expressed over and over the oneness of Jesus Christ with God the Father. So when he says, believe in God, believe also in me, he's not really saying two separate things. He's saying, trust me. I know what I'm doing. Believe in God. Well, why should they trust God? Why should God be trustworthy, and why should their trust in God be an answer to their anxiety, to their worry? I think, think there's two reasons, at least for that. Number one, God is sovereign. God is in control. He has the power and the authority to govern and rule the affairs of mankind as he pleases. So, none of this is outside of his control, right? They might be inclined to think the wheels are coming off of this thing. It's all about to fall apart. You're going to leave. You're going to get betrayed. You're going to get arrested. You're going to go to a cross. This is not an accident. This is under my control, right? Just as Jesus will tell Pilate later, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down willingly, right? So I'm in control. I've got this handled. Don't worry. Number two, God is good. He's sovereign and he's good. What he plans, what he purposes, his designs are right and they're good. They're pleasing. That doesn't mean always in the moment that it will be easy or desirable, but in the end it will yield the best and ultimate good that we could ever imagine. Why should they trust God? Because he's got it under control and because he's good. This is for your good. When your heart is troubled, when you're in doubt, when you're afraid and you can't see what the future will bring, and we're all there sometimes, trust God. That sounds cliche. It sounds trite, but it is truly the greatest remedy to our anxieties, to know who God is and to rest in him because he is good and he has it under control. Rest in his providential care for you. Believe that he knows what he's doing and that what he's doing is for your good. Trust him. So that's the first thing he says to them. He exhorts them. Don't be troubled. Trust me. Second thing he comforts them with is this vision of a hopeful future. Essentially, you will be with me forever. At the end of all of this, you will be with me. You will be in your true home, and it will never change. It will never end. He hinted at that much to Peter when Peter said, why can't we go where you're going? And he said, you can't follow me now, but afterward you will. I think he means not only after the cross and resurrection, but after their own, after Peter's own death. So, you will come with me. So, Jesus' description of our life with him in eternity 
defies the ethereal, floating, disembodied existence that sometimes comes into our minds when we think about heaven. There are some pretty goofy notions about heaven that we kind of uh, absorb, I think, from uh, from the culture around us, like, you know, everybody becomes an angel, or uh, everybody gets a cloud and a harp, so we're just sitting on a cloud, suddenly we become harpists. I never touched a harp in my life, but in heaven, apparently, I'm going to become a great harpist, just like everybody. Or we just float around in silent meditation for all eternity, right? We have, we have some pretty weird ideas about what eternity is going to be like, but the Bible pictures a tangible real-world environment where we have resurrected, glorified bodies, relationships with other saints. We live in a recreated world, and we are literally physically in the presence of God, Father, Son, and Spirit. He's there. We are there with Him. And in fact, that is the main point that Jesus makes here about what's coming for them, that where I am, there you may be also. The most important reality about our eternal existence in heaven is we're with Jesus. You know, there's this whole kind of genre of books that's gotten popular in recent years uh, that I've heard kind of uh, mockingly called heaven tourism books, where somebody supposedly has died and gone to heaven and they've come back to life and they have this kind of vision of what heaven was like and now they're going to tell the world what they saw. And so there's best-selling books, some of them have been made into feature films, uh, that, that tell the story of what somebody, often a child, saw when they were in heaven. I'm not going to go into great detail about what those books contain, but what, I, what does seem to be plain uh, is that generally speaking in these books, they bear only the slightest reference to Jesus at all. If Jesus made an appearance in their vision of heaven, it was peripheral. It was kind of at the end, oh yeah, Jesus was also there. It spends a lot of time talking about the colors that they saw and cool animals that were there and being reunited with loved ones that had passed away and things like that. And the fact that Jesus is there is almost an afterthought in, in these books. But Jesus here tells us that the center point of our experience in his eternal kingdom is this, that where I am, you may be also. So Jesus and his presence with us will be the focal point of the eternal kingdom. I don't think we're just going to be floating around. I don't think we're just going to be singing worship songs like endlessly um, over and over again. I think we're going to live life we're going to be in a place. He says, I am going to prepare a place for you. In my Father's house are many rooms or dwelling places is really the, the language that he uses there. I am going to prepare a place for you. And I'm going to come back so that where I am, you may be also. So this vision of the future an eternal future with God in his kingdom. Jesus intends to comfort his disciples' anxiety by envisioning the future that he's preparing for them. And in fact, that's how the notion of our eternity in heaven with Christ 
is used throughout the New Testament. It is used as a motivation. It is used as a comfort. It is used as encouragement in our dark times and amid persecution. It's as if to say, keep going. Just hang on. Because at the end of this race, there is a prize that you will not want to miss out on. So I think that there's a, there's a good application for us here. Think about eternity. Remember the eternal future that Jesus is preparing for you. Live your life today in light of the eternal hope that's before you. I think that's how we ought to approach this. When I was growing up, heaven and hell were presented as extremely important realities to know about. And the notion of being saved from sin meant an eternity in heaven was waiting for you. And that was good news. Conversely, to remain in your sin meant that an eternity in hell awaited. And that was unimaginably terrible and should be avoided. So that was a center point often of preaching of the Bible in the churches where I grew up. Wherever the biblical passage was, it would come down to the promise of heaven to those who trust in Christ and the danger of hell for those who remain unrepentant and in their sin. But it seems to me that in recent years, Christians have become sort of hesitant, almost embarrassed to talk about heaven. Maybe because it makes us seem really old-fashioned or out of touch with everyday life and the burdens and struggles of the world. But if Jesus thinks it's worth comforting his despairing disciples with the promise of an eternal future where their troubles will be no more and they will be in his presence forever, then why shouldn't we do the same? Why shouldn't we remind one another of the glory of heaven and the indescribable joy of living in God's presence? We get just little foretastes of it here. In our brightest moments, in the greatest experiences of worship and community and, co and connection and communion with God, whether that's in prayer or through you know, worshiping together as the church or as we read the scriptures and we sense God speaking to our hearts, whatever that is, those moments of clarity where we feel like God is near, those are just the faintest hint of the glory that each follower of Jesus will experience for eternity in his presence. This is good news. We should not be ashamed about this or embarrassed about this. And we should, in fact, speak to one another about these truths. Paul uh, gives us a great example of this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, where he's speaking about um, the reality of this future resurrection, those who have died in Christ will be, when Jesus returns, will be raised from the dead, and then those who are still alive will, be, will join them in the air. He says in 1 Thessalonians 4, that's not where he is, 1 Thessalonians 4, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with 
the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Paul not only encourages the Thessalonian believers with these words, he instructs them, encourage each other, remind each other there is an internal glory that is coming that you cannot even imagine how great it's going to be. God himself will be in your midst and you will be with him forever. Just hang on. Just hang on. So Jesus tells us that our true home is in heaven. He is going away and he's preparing a place. And in fact, the era that we live in right now, I think there's a, you could say that's what Jesus is doing. He is preparing a place for us so that when, we, when he comes back and calls us to himself, we will join him where he is. Our true heaven, our true home, excuse me, is in heaven. And then the final few verses we'll look at today, he tells us very plainly that the only pathway home is through Jesus Christ. The only pathway to this home, this glory, is through Jesus. Look with me at verse 4 of John 14. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. We don't know the way to where you're going. How can we know? I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Maybe one of the most famous pronouncements of Jesus in all the Bible. And it's in this context where he's comforting his disciples who are worried about the future by saying, you will be with me in heaven forever. And the question comes, how do we get there? Through me. Through me. You know, many who claim to be Christian have begun to reject the, exclusi the exclusivity, it's a hard word, the exclusivity of Christianity. Maybe in an attempt to remain relevant. They don't want to be offensive. don't want to put people off. So let's just kind of soft play that. John MacArthur says, actually, Christianity is not relevant at all if it is merely one of many possible paths to God. The relevance of the gospel has always been its absolute exclusivity, summed up in the truth that Christ alone has atoned for sin, and therefore Christ alone can provide reconciliation with God for those who believe only in him. So Jesus doesn't become just sort of one option among many to get us to this glorious future, this eternal home in heaven. So the Adolf Hitler and Mahatma Gandhi questions, and if you're a decent person, you'll probably go to heaven, and if you're a bad person, you probably won't, get turned on its head a bit. The, the, the bad news is we're all bad people. We all fall into the same category as sinners and enemies of God, those who have rebelled against him. 
and left to ourselves without intervention, we're all destined for the bad place. That's what's coming for every human being who remains in his sin. But Jesus gives this comfort to his disciples. You know me. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Why? Because Jesus and the Father are connected in such a way, as Colossians 1.15 tells us, that he is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature. John himself told us in chapter 1 that he revealed the Father to us full of grace and truth. So Jesus says, I am the pathway to God. There's not another one. There's not another way. Only I pay for sins at the cross. Only I conquer death through my resurrection. Only I extend the invitation to eternal life through simple faith. It's the only way. I don't know if you've seen this uh, bumper sticker. We have this image up here. Uh, it says coexist. All these different symbols. There's at least, you know, Christianity on the right there is the cross. Uh, Islam, Judaism. We got some Chinese religions in here with that yin yang, kind of Taoism, Confucianism. Um, Wicca, I think, is that eye with the little moon over it. So we got some various things going on, different religions, different worldviews uh, sort of uh, espoused there, and the idea being we should all just be able to live together in peace. Now, in one sense, of course, Christians should agree with the sentiment behind this slogan. After all, we believe in religious liberty, right? The conscience of a human being must be free to make a choice, right? To decide what we believe and what we disbelieve. And we believe in religious liberty precisely because someone cannot be coerced or manipulated into the Christian faith. You don't put a gun to someone's head and say, believe the gospel. Uh, okay. Is that a true conversion? You cannot coerce anybody into belief. So we should respect others, even others with wildly different worldviews, and live together peaceably. Okay? So I think at that level, we can agree. Yeah, sure, we should be able to coexist, that is, share the same cultural space with people who see life and reality very differently than we do. But I think there's more intended in this slogan than just, can't we all just get along? I, I think it's more like all of these various worldviews and various paths to God or the afterlife or whatever it is are equally valid, right? And so we should just let everybody be what they're going to be because they're all the same, essentially. I've got a, a Muslim friend who says all the time, we're really not very different, right? Christianity and Islam are really, we all talk about, you know, loving your neighbor and being a good person and trying to please God. So really, we're not that far off. But there are some pretty big, important differences between Christianity and every other system of belief, whether that's a, a full-fledged religion or just a kind of slapped-together worldview that I think many people live with. Chief among them is John 14, 6. I am the way and the truth and the life. 
No one, that's exclusive, no one comes to the Father except through me. If you want this vision, this, this future that I've put before you, you've got a place prepared for you, you're with God forever, all your troubles are at an end. If you want that future, there's only one way, and it's Jesus. It's faith in Jesus Christ. There are all kinds of inadequate pathways to God, things that we set up to say, this is how I'm going to get to God. One of those inadequate pathways would be a religious system based on human effort. By the way, that's virtually all of them. That's virtually every religion. It, at the core of it, it is about trying to pile up good deeds or to appease God, whoever we conceive of him to be, to such an extent that he will accept us, right? Virtually every religion outside of Christianity has that at its core, trying to measure up to get God's approval. It's not going to work. You can't be good enough. We're all sinners. We've all broken the law. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So religious systems that are based on human effort are utterly going to fail when it comes to achieving a place in heaven, when it comes to reaching God. Another inadequate pathway to God is the moral teachings of Christianity without an unwavering confession of Jesus Christ as Lord. That happens all the time, by the way. I think a lot of people who grew up in church they remember some of the commands of Christianity. They remember some of the, the instructions toward purity and our speech and the kinds of people that we ought to be in the world. And they take that as their system. So they have these moral teachings of Christianity and they think, if I just do the best I can living up to these standards, then that'll be good enough. Right? Then God will somehow be pleased with me. Uh, maybe the most famous version of that is Thomas Jefferson, who kind of made it, he edited his own Bible, where he, he, he thought Jesus as a moral teacher was as good as they come. So he, but he hated any notion that there was miracles or that he was God. All of that was utter rubbish to him. So he cut out all the, the places where Jesus gives a moral teaching. Love your neighbor, um, you know, give to others those kinds of things, where, he, where these commands, these instructions on how we should live in relation to people. And he cut those things out, put them into his own New Testament, and had his own edition of the Bible. They had the stuff that he liked, the moral teachings of Jesus, without any of the claims about who Jesus is, or his demands on the world beyond these moral, kind of virtuous living. That won't work. The moral teachings of Christianity are not Christianity. Christianity is about Jesus, bears his name for a reason. Jesus stands at the center of it. And what Jesus says is, you can't measure up. You can't keep enough laws. You can't live morally pure enough for God to accept you, for God to be impressed with you, for God to approve of you. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to stand in your place. So he came to earth as a man to live an obedient life because we couldn't do it. 
So he lived in our place. And then, as we're just around the corner here in John's gospel, he died in our place. He went to the cross to bear our penalty in himself and exchanged himself for us, the innocent for the guilty, the righteous for the unrighteous. And then he conquered death and the grave by rising again so that that last great enemy that stood against all of us would be removed. Why? So that we could be ushered into this eternal kingdom that he tells us about in John 14. That's what Christianity is all about. So that question of how do we get there how do we get in, if you will, to the kingdom of God? It's not come up with a religious system that piles up good deeds. It's not the moral teachings of Jesus and the Bible, but separated from any confession or reality about belief about who Jesus himself is and what he uniquely accomplished for people. None of that is going to work. Not all of that will fail us in the moment of truth. So it comes down to simple faith. It comes down to a confession of Jesus as Lord. I'm always reminded of Romans 10.9 where Paul says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and you believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There's confession. There's belief. That's what it, that's what it comes down to. Are you piling up good deeds in the hope of earning God's approval? Are you relying on your own efforts to live a moral life or be a good family man in order to make yourself acceptable somehow before God? Or are you simply trusting in the saving work of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, in His sinless life, His death on the cross to cleanse you from your sins and His resurrection from the dead to purchase a place in heaven for you? It really is that simple. Sometimes we try to overcomplicate it. We make it harder than it's got to be. Well, if I'm going to be right with God, if I'm going to be saved, i got to clean up my act. I've talked to people before that say that. Well, I, re I really want to you know, come back to God and get involved in church, but I've just got to clean up my life first. That's absolutely backwards, friends. You don't clean up your life on your own. Whatever apparent cleaning up happens is going to be superficial at best. And it doesn't take care of your biggest problem, which is a heart that is in rebellion against God. The only way is allowing Jesus to clean up your act by embracing what he did on the cross for you and confessing together with Christians throughout the ages, Jesus is Lord. Lord. 